1859, British author Charles Dickens published his book, A Tale of Two Cities. Those cities, London and Paris. The Bible has been called a book that is a tale of two cities as well. Babylon and Jerusalem. The city of Satan and the city of God. And the question tonight for all of the world and all of its inhabitants is this. Which city are you a citizen of? There are only two. Two choices. We saw it in the clip there as Jason Bourne was fiddling through the safety deposit box there at that Swiss bank, trying to figure out which country he was a citizen of, going through the many passports. But in the choice that we have before us tonight, there are only two. Babylon and Jerusalem, the city of Satan and the city of God. You see, the Bible presents a picture of two cities, two kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. The kingdom of death and the kingdom of life. The kingdom of this world and the kingdom of heaven. And the biggest question again is this. Which kingdom are you a citizen of? You can only be a citizen of one of these kingdoms. It's one or the other. There are no dual citizenships in this system. Amen? You have to choose one of the two cities. Tonight, I want to answer this question. How can I become a naturalized citizen of the kingdom of heaven? That's the central question tonight. Well, that begs another question. What is naturalization? Some of you might ask. Well, let me answer that question. Naturalization is the legal act or process by which a non-citizen in a country may acquire citizenship or nationality of that country. So when you become a naturalized citizen of the United States, you can apply and receive for one of these. Amen? A U.S. passport. Now, I have my own passport here this morning, or this evening, and uh, to declare to you that Not only am I a citizen of the United States, I'm a natural-born citizen. So if I wanted to, I could actually run for president. I'm not going to do that. But I could if I so chose. But here I've got my U.S. passport. But tonight the question is not how can you get one of these U.S. passports. The question tonight, and I've done a little artwork this, this week with my son. The question tonight is how can you get one of these? Amen? A passport of papers that declares your citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. And I got a couple right here. Amen? All right? And so if you stick around for the series, you're going to get a passport. And and I got a great idea of being able to witness and declare our faith to those around us because this isn't a fictitious story that we're a part of. We're a part of a real, live, living kingdom of heaven that is more real than the nation that you and I are standing in right now. Amen? You believe that? A passport from the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Now, the answer to the question, how can I become a naturalized citizen in the kingdom of heaven? The answer to the question, we must start 
out with the reality of our situation. The Bible tells us that we start out in the kingdom of death. The kingdom of darkness, we start out in Satan's kingdom. The Bible says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. King David declared in the Psalms that he was brought forth from his mother's womb in iniquity. And so the Bible says that without God, we are trapped in bondage, in bondage of darkness, in bondage of the kingdom of darkness. Now God's goal is that he would have a people that are his in this world and in the kingdom of heaven. That he would have a people that love him and serve him freely of their own free will, of their own free choice. Why? Because that's what love demands. True love demands a choice that we're able to love the Lord. So he's given everybody the freedom to choose. He's given every single person that has ever been alive on planet earth, he's been, he, they've been given a fundamental right the freedom of choice to choose which kingdom they're going to be a part of, which city they're going to be a part of. We have the opportunity to choose life or death. We have the opportunity to choose light or darkness. We've got an opportunity to choose God or the God of this world. So we see this choice playing out in the Bible as it progresses. We see it from the beginning all the way back in the Garden of Eden, we see it there as God gave the uh, first human beings the choice to obey his command and be in right harmony and fellowship with him or to choose their own path and come under the direction and the sway of the serpent that was in the garden. We see it in the world before the flood as the flood before the flood, in the time of Noah, there was a time of, of, of just heinous corruption as flesh and humankind was being corrupted on a level that, that we're actually headed to once again because Jesus gave us that indication that the time of the end would be as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. So that choice was there before the flood. And after the flood, that choice was available for man again as those eight individuals came out of that ark and they were given that opportunity and that command and the command was this go out into all the world scatter into all the world and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and this was the command but just a couple chapters after they come out of the ark we find that mankind has not obeyed that command that they have congregated in the valley, uh, the, 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 the plain of Shinar, and they have begun under the direction of a, of, a, of a dictator, a ruler, Nimrod, that they have begun to just stay together and, and get to work on this tower, this, this ziggurat, this uh, gateway to the heavens that they were going to worship uh, the, the, the gods that they, that they wanted to, to worship. So we see this playing out in Genesis 11, that man had rebelled against the command and was gathered together under the Chaldean rule of Nimrod at Babel. And, and, and at this time, the earth all spoke one language and the kingdom centered at Babylon, Babel, which is to say Babylon. Babylon was dominant. So what did God do? In Genesis chapter 11, he acted. He acted upon this situation. And we pick it up in Genesis chapter 11, verse 7. 
God says this, come, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth. So the people groups and the nations were established by this transaction, by this situation that God did, that he scattered the people, that he decreed that they would be scattered and they would be partitioned out across the face of the earth because that is what he commanded. So the people, groups, and nations were established upon the face of the earth. So we see that in Genesis 11. But I want to take you to another text this morning, and this is where I really need you to put your thinking caps on. Because what you're going to see tonight is you're going to see some, something that is, is ultimately foundational to the whole situation, the whole ball of wax, okay? I want to take you to another passage, and it's found in the book of Deuteronomy, and it's chapter 32. So turn over there with me, Deuteronomy chapter 32. Don't be afraid, don't be afraid of Deuteronomy. Everyone say Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. Amen. Yeah, don't be afraid of it. Own it. Own it. Amen. Deuteronomy is mine. Amen. Deuteronomy is mine. Deuteronomy chapter 3, uh, 32, we see God's plan. We see God's plan. Now, this is what it says. Pick it up, verse 7. It says this. Remember the days of old. Now, let me, let me stop right there and explain. This is, going, this is going to be a parallel passage to the Genesis 11 passage that we just read, where God scattered, confused the language, and scattered the people out across the, play, uh, the face of the earth. But here's what it says in Deuteronomy 32.7. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you. Your elders, and they will tell you. What? Ask your father what? Ask your elders what? Because whatever he's wanting him to ask their fathers and their elders, they're going to tell you. They're going to tell you. Well, what is it that you should ask? Verse 8. When the Most High, that's El Elyon, when the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. And so this is what God in his word is saying. Look, you want to you know something? You want me to teach you something? You want to know something? I'm going to teach you something tonight. <laughs> ask your father, ask your elders. They're going to tell you what? They're going to tell you about when the Most High divided the people and he scattered the people across the face of the earth. And how did he do it? When he separated the sons of Adam. That's a Bible Old Testament way of saying mankind. When he separated mankind and he set the boundaries of the peoples. And he, so he scattered people out and he put them in groups and he put them in languages and he scattered them out across the face of the earth. And look at this. It says, according to the number of the children of Israel. Now, what you see here is the translation, a translation called the New King James Version. And most of the other English translations that you're probably going to be familiar with are going to be um, based on the, the, the text and the, the manuscripts that this particular passage of Deuteronomy was interpreted from, and that's called the Masoretic Text. 
Okay, and so this, this uh, p- uh, portion of scripture was translated from the Masoretic text or MTs. Okay, so you pay attention because if you read your Bible, you're going to come across this when you're reading your, your, your portions for the day, and you're going to come, it'll come, come across the little note at the bottom, and it's going to see MT, and you're going to go, oh, ding, 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 I know what that is, right? The Masoretic text. Okay, so this is from the Masoretic text, which dates to about 900 A.D. So it's not a particularly early uh, text, a uh, 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 fragment of, of, of the Bible. And there are serious scholars. Um, what, what I want to do right now is I want to show you that there is another rendering of the last phrase of verse 8 that blows this thing up and gives us really a really awesome understanding of what God has done when he separated the people out across the face of the earth. Go back, go back. I'm not there yet. There are serious scholars that have found a different reading of this verse from fragments found at Qumran. Now, if you're familiar with Qumran, Qumran was in the area where in, in Israel by the Dead Sea. It's a city. I've actually had the opportunity of, to stand in the excavated uh, scriptoriums at Qumran where they discovered these fragments. And what they discovered at Qumran, which, which we know as the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, many of the fragments that were used, uh, that were, has later been found out to interpret, to translate what's called the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament that dates back to about 270 to 285 BC, so 300 years before Christ. So um, in this, in Qumran, what they found, and I'm borrowing from uh, some research by by Dr. Michael Heiser, who is a a Hebrew and Semitic languages uh, scholar and PhD, and presently on the staff of Logos uh, Bible Software. And so I'm, I want to give credit where credit's due on this, and he's not the only one uh, that, that alludes to this, but I think this is, this is powerful stuff. Um, in, the, in his paper on this, Heiser presents fragment 4Q-Dut. 4Q-Dut, all right? Throw that out at the water cooler Monday morning, okay? 4Q-Dut. People look at you like, what? Yeah, it's a fragment from Qumran that was used in the, uh, the, trans- the Septuagint translation. So we're talking about the Masoretic text that is 900 AD, and now we're going back to 300 BC. So we're going back to documents that are t- 1,200 years earlier than what this uh, is saying here in Deuteronomy 32 in your translation, okay? I've got actually a copy of one of the, the uh, this is an actual copy of the fragment um, of, of uh, this passage in Deuteronomy, and the highlighted section is this last phrase there in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8. Okay, now, one more little thing, and then we'll move on, okay? I've got to show you the Greek. This is the Greek, and my father is actually the Greek scholar, and he's the one who can tell you all about this. But let me just tell you, here is the last phrase of this verse, and here is the key word that according to the sons of God. Dad, help me out. What's this? Theos. This is of God here, right? So what the, this is the Septuagint translation. Pay attention, you're gonna, this is going to blow the classical music right on out, okay? And so listen, this is, 
here's what God did. Here's what God did. Are you guys with me? Here's what God did. Chapter, chapter 32, verse 8. Go back to that text real quick because I'm going to bring them along. I'm, I'm going to bring you, I'm going to reel you right in here. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated mankind, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God is actually the translation. And what this is, is uh, what you had in heaven was you had the sons of God in the Old Testament are uh, heavenly beings that were created. Uh, uh, they're, they're basically what we would call angels in the Old Testament. Classic verse on it. And anywhere in the Old Testament, when you see sons of God, uh, this is uh, speaking of this, these members of the heavenly host, if you will. And so the members of the heavenly host, some of them rebelled with Satan and they went out from the kingdom of heaven and they went out with Satan and Satan is now forming his own kingdom. And so now Satan has some of these sons of God and as they were worshiping in this pagan system, in this idolatrous, godless, satanic system upon Babel, what God did is he showed up and he divided them out and he said, okay, you don't want to listen to me. You don't want to obey my commands. You don't want to serve me. You don't want to fill the earth and multiply. Here's what I'm going to do. I am going to separate you out. I'm going to set the boundaries out. I'm going to separate out the nations and I'm going to separate you out to these sons of God that you're wanting to worship, that you're wanting to go after. And he separates them out across and sets the boundaries. And what happens here is what you can see is some of this, as we already talked about it in the Ephesians series, when we talked about the princes, the principalities and powers that have geographic territorial uh, jurisdiction over certain areas. And so because they were set out and these boundaries were set, you can see where some of these sons of God that are not serving El Elyon, the Most High, and they are now given over to rule over these territories geographically across the face of the earth. And so here's what God is saying in, 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 in Deuteronomy 32. Okay, look, I'm going to separate you out. I'm going to give you what you want. You don't want to serve me? I'm going to give you over. I'm going to give you over to that which you want to serve. You have a choice. But if you don't want to serve me, if you don't want to obey me, it's okay. I'm going to just give you over to the sons of God in that sense. And so we can see this. As in Daniel chapter 10, remember when Daniel went on his 21-day prayer, many people were on a 21-day prayer thing to start the, the year because of Daniel, what Daniel did in Daniel chapter 10. And this is what it says in Daniel chapter 10, verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. So what happened? That, that this angel came to give Daniel understanding, but he was actually withheld, held up by one of these princes, one of these demonic princes, one of these satan, one of these sons of God, the prince of Persia. Yeah, it's not just a movie. The prince of Persia withstood him 21. Who was this? Is this, is this made up stuff in the Old Testament? No, this is the spiritual principalities that's being talked about in the Old Testament. And this is what happened. The areas were divided up. And, and, and God gave the choice, said, I'm going to just give you over to these, give you over to these kingdoms, give you over. 
So God scattered the people and set the boundaries and gave the people over to the gods, the fallen sons of God that had chosen to rebel against God. Now, this last part in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, is kind of an Old Testament version of Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Are you familiar with that? In the New Testament, Paul says this to the church at Rome. He says this, Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So rather than, they have the choice to worship God, the creator of all things, the mastermind of the whole universe, the one whose word is perfect, whose the whole thing will pass away, but his word will never pass away. Yeah, that guy, they have an opportunity to worship that guy, but they didn't want to. And so what God says, I'm going to give you over to what you want. You can have what you want. I'm just going to give you over to what you want. And they chose to worship and serve created things rather than the one true living God. Wow. And this, my friends, is the current state of the world. This was the state of the world then when God, when God scattered the, the people. And this is the current state of the world right now. People have been given over to do what they want to do, to serve the created thing rather than the creator. So what does the Lord do next? After he scatters everybody and sets the boundaries and gives them over to these things, what does God do? He selects and calls his own people. Amen? He's going to let them do whatever they want, but then what he's going to do is he's going to choose for himself his own people out of the world that will serve him, that will choose to obey him, that will respond to his word by faith and be saved and be brought into his heavenly kingdom. And this is exactly what God does. If you turn the page from Genesis chapter 11, you flip the page over to Genesis chapter 12, and this is exactly what God does and begins to do in Genesis chapter 12 as he calls a man named Abram out of Babylon, out of Ur of the Chaldees. And he says, Abram, I want you to come out of this. I want you to leave your people. I want you to leave your, your nation. I want to, you to leave your family. And I am calling you to come out and to be a person who I am going to establish and I am going to build a, 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 a kingdom through you. I'm going to build a, a nation through you. I'm going to build a family through you. And furthermore, all of the families." All of the families of the earth will be blessed because what I'm going to do in you, Abram, if you'll respond and you'll come out of Ur. And so what happens? Abram, by faith, heeds the word of the Lord and he comes out of Babel. He comes out of Ur and he follows the Lord. He comes out, he obeys and God leads him all the way to the land of promise. God leads him all the way to the land a promise that would be the place where God would establish his city. Amen? The city of Jerusalem, the city of the great king. Now, back to Deuteronomy 32, verse 9, the next verse. Here's what, here's what God says to, to finish in that passage. He's, it says this. Here's what it says. For the Lord's person. So verse 8 was, I've scattered you out. I've set the boundaries. I've given you over. But for the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. What's he saying? 
Jacob is the grandson of Abram who becomes Abraham. And Jacob is the one who's the father of the 12 sons who become the 12 tribes. And Jacob is the one who God changes his name to Israel. And that is the family that becomes the people. And so the Jewish people, the Israelites that were called by the word of God who responded to the word are the people that God chose. And those are the people who respond in faith are the people that can be a part of his kingdom. Amen? Now, this isn't, this isn't nationality as such. This isn't a thing where it's like, well, because you're born into Jacob's family or whatever, you're automatic. No, you have to come in. You have to follow just the way that Abraham came in. The same way that he did. He responded to the word of God. He responded and was obedient and said, yeah, I'm going to come out of Babylon and I'm going to come and I'm going to be a part of your new Jerusalem. I'm going to be a part of the Jerusalem that you're establishing. So God's portion is Israel. Now the question is this, how do you become a part of this nation? How do you become a part of this nation? The spiritual nation of Israel, the nation that Jesus refers to as the kingdom of heaven. How do you become a citizen of this nation? And what are the things that characterize its citizens? And this brings us, and we're only going to go through a couple verses here this morning in our main, or tonight in our main text in Matthew chapter 5. But we come to a passage of scripture in Matthew chapter 5, which is called the Sermon on the Mount. And this is Jesus. This is a sermon that he preached. This is his teaching. And in this passage, in this sermon, he declares how you can become a citizen in the kingdom of heaven and how, what are the characteristics of your life as you are a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. Now, the question is, how can you become a naturalized citizen in the kingdom of heaven? That's our main question, right? So let's go all the way back to the beginning. How do you become a naturalized citizen in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus will tell us in this text tonight, declare your spiritual bankruptcy. Declare your spiritual bankruptcy. Jesus, when he began... His ministry, he preached a simple message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And after his temptation, he went into Galilee and he preached repentance from sin and to turn to the kingdom of heaven. And many people were there and they, and they followed him. He called them. He called them to follow him. And, and they became his disciples and they became his followers. They became his students. And as Matthew 5 opens, Jesus sees all those that had begun to follow him. And so he went up on a mountain. And what do we see that these disciples follow him up the hillside? Now, one of the cool things that you will see if you ever get a chance to go to Israel, that if you go in and around the Sea of Galilee, it's, a, it's like a lake that sits in a, in a valley that's basically like a crater. It's like a crater lake. And what you have, the hillsides that come up from the lake are, become like natural amphitheaters. And so what you have is you have this, these natural amphitheaters that are created just right there in the hillsides. And so Jesus goes up onto one of these mountains and he gives this message to his followers there on the mountain. And look at it. Let's read the text tonight. And I'm only going to stay with me. I'm only going to be about five more minutes. Okay. So don't be scared. It was a long intro to tonight because it was an intro to the whole study. Okay. So don't, don't get nervous. Don't get nervous. Stay with me. I see some of you guys going, this is the introduction. I thought he was winding down. No, okay. Stay with me, all right?
Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, it says this, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Well, one of the things he does is he goes up on this mountain, and he, he, one of the commentators said he went up this mountain. So many people were following him. He says, I'm going to go up on this mountain and uh, see if these people will follow me. You know? Or maybe he was just trying to get, you know, just get away for a little bit. The Bible, the, the, the New Testament tells us that Jesus would go up into the mountains to pray and to, and to retreat and so forth. So possibly he was going up on a hillside just to kind of do his thing or whatever, get a breather. And there was this throng of people that followed him, these disciples. And so what does he do? He sits down and he begins to teach him. Now in the Middle East, the rabbis, the teachers would sit down and all the rest of the people would, uh, would stand up. Okay. So here, we're going to try it real quick. We're going to try it. You guys go ahead and stand up. You guys go ahead and stand up. Okay. All right. Okay. And now I'm going to sit down. Okay. All right. This is nice. Okay. Jesus had it right. Okay, now I've got your attention, don't I? I've got your attention. We're going to do this Jesus style. So Jesus goes up on a mountain. Okay, we're not going to do that. Okay, let, you can sit down. Okay. Now, now, now you're getting really worried. Now you're saying, okay, now not only has he got a long introduction tonight, but he's having to stand up and he's going to sit down for the rest of the time. No, no, no. This is very, this is very Middle Eastern. This, very, this is very of the area. So you have this awesome setting. You have this beautiful hillside. You have this lake, this Sea of Galilee, and you have Jesus sitting there, and he's going to begin to teach the people. So you have this awesome, awesome, awesome setting. And it says here in the text, in verse 2, it says, Then he opened his mouth and taught them. He opened his mouth and he taught them. And this was, it was to say that he opened his mouth. It wasn't just kind of like a little conversation over here. He had some people here. He had the people that had come to follow him, to listen, these disciples that wanted to follow. And so he opened his mouth with authority and with projection. And he opened it up and he spoke to them and he, and he taught them. Then he opened his mouth. This means that Jesus used his voice in a strong way to teach this crowd. He spoke with energy, projecting his thoughts with earnest. A little bit like I'm trying to do tonight. Amen? I'm trying to open my mouth to do some teaching. Now, Jesus opens his mouth to preach this sermon. What did he say? Look at it, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the opening line of the sermon. Now, I have been taught in homiletics. You say, what's homiletics? Homiletics is a class that preachers take in Bible college, and it's basically this. It's sermon preparation and sermon presentation. Your first class with homiletics, you learn how to prepare a sermon. The second class, you learn how to present a sermon. And you get graded on it. It's all kinds of fun. Okay? 
And one of the things that they teach you in hermeneutics, not hermeneutics, that's, that's for another time. We don't get into that tonight. That's another time. One of the things they teach you in homiletics is this, that you want to start with an attention-getting statement. Amen? You, you, when you get up to speak, when you get up to preach, you got to understand that everyone is coming in and really, you know, they might not care what you have to say. You know, they're bebopping around and they're going, you know, down Lake Washington and Croton and over here on Wickham and popping into the kangaroo and, the, and the, you know, 7-Eleven over here and they're doing all kinds of stuff. And they're coming in here for church or whatever. And they might not be in a place where they, they give two sense what you have to say. So you have to start with an attention-getting line, is what they teach you. Now here's the question. Do you, and does anyone here, I will, I will give some type of prize for anyone here besides my mother, because she will probably get it, okay, besides my mother, who can tell me what my opening line of this message was? Anybody? What? Uh, no, the, the opening line, when I prayed, now here's what you have to understand about me. I pray before the sermon, and when I say amen, the next words out of my mouth are the opening of the, of the sermon, okay? So that, that, you know that going forward from this moment forward. So does anyone, can anyone tell me what the opening line was? Yes. This, this, close. This, <laughs> this was the opening line of my message tonight. Put it back up on the screen. In 1859, British author Charles Dickens published his book, A Tale of Two Cities. Okay, did anyone really remember that? And you just couldn't pull it off of the hard drive real quick. Amen? Raise your hand if you actually knew that and you were just, you know, just letting somebody else win the prize. Okay? All right. So this was the opening line of my message tonight, which is inconsequential, <laughs> which doesn't matter a whole lot, amen? But here's the opening line of the most famous sermon ever delivered on the face of the earth. And what is it? What is it? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't get any more attention getting than that. And it doesn't get any more profound for our lives and what God wants to do. Now the question is, what does he mean? By that. Amen? That's the question. What does he mean? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So if you want to be in the kingdom of heaven, if you want to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, then Jesus says in his opening line of the sermon, blessed are the poor in spirit. And what he begins here is what men have called the Beatitudes. And I want to t uh, subtitle these the, the character of kingdom citizens. 
the Beatitudes, the character of kingdom citizens. The first portion of the Sermon on the Mount is known as the Beatitudes, which means the blessings, but can also be understood as giving the believer his Beatitudes, the attitudes he should be. Amen? In the Beatitudes, Jesus sets forth both the nature and the aspirations of citizens of his kingdom, and they have in our learning these character traits. Here in verse 3, the first beatitude, he tells how one can be included as a citizen of heaven. How can one be a naturalized citizen into the kingdom of heaven? The foundational key is this, poverty of spirit, poor in spirit. We have to declare, you have to declare your spiritual bankruptcy. Now we have to understand poverty of spirit. We have to understand spiritual bankruptcy. First, Jesus says, if you are poor in your spirit, then you will be blessed. If you're poor in spirit, then you will be blessed. The idea behind the ancient Greek word blessed, and pay attention because this is going to go on as we go through on the next weeks. The word blessed here is a word that many have translated happy, and, but, in the, but in the truest godliest sense of the word. Not in our modern sense of being happy or comfortable or entertained at any given moment. Oh, I'm, I'm happy right now. I'm not sad. I'm, I'm happy. No, no, no. Blessed is more than just that kind of happiness, that kind of temporal happiness. This same word for blessed in the, in the New Testament, which is in some ways means happy, is applied to God in 1 Timothy 1, verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. So, God is blessed. God is happy. God is markarios. Markarios, this word for blessed, then describes the joy which has, has its secret within itself, that the joy which is, is serene and untouchable and self-contained, that joy which is completely independent of all the chances and the changes of life. And so if you want to be blessed, if you want to be markarios, if you want to have that same blessing that, that God is described as having, then you want to be poor in spirit. You want to be poor in spirit. You want to have a spiritual bankruptcy. Amen? Then you've got to realize and declare your spiritual bankruptcy without God. This is without God. Without God, you, you realize that you are completely spiritually bankrupt in this world, and it's the only way to enter Heaven. The signature characteristic of the citizen of heaven is being poor in spirit. Now, a little bit about the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit, this is not a man's confession that he is by nature insignificant or personally without value. This isn't like, woe is me, like I'm not that good, I'm not that good looking, I'm not, I'm not that talented, I'm not that great, I'm not that worthy of anything. I'm not. This isn't that, poor in spirit is not that. Poor in spirit is someone who recognizes that they have no spiritual assets. They, they know that they are spiritually bankrupt. We might say that the ancient Greeks had a word for the working poor and the word for the truly destitute, the truly poor. Jesus used the word here for the truly poor. It indicates someone who must beg for whatever they have or get. This poverty of spirit is not a, a self-deprecation or self-hatred. It's a realization that without God, spiritually you have no assets whatsoever. And so then what do you do? Well, first of all, how do you come to know this? How do you come to know this? The Holy Spirit 
amen, is the one that comes alongside us to convince, to convict, to bring us to that understanding that we're spiritually destitute, that we're spiritually bankrupt. It's the Holy Spirit that reveals it to us and that he shows us our need of a savior and that we realize, you know what? Hey, I, I am in this world and in this world without God, I am totally lost. I am spiritually destitute and I need God and I need a savior. That's the person. That's the person that's poor in spirit. Amen. Now, now, now are you familiar with Dave Ramsey? Raise your hand if you know who Dave Ramsey is. He's like a financial guru. And one of the things that he teaches in his book, in his many books, one of the things he teaches about getting, your, getting financial happiness and all this stuff is you have to come to a realization of your actual situation. And the, and the reason why he says this is because so many people financially are living in like a dream world. They're li- they, they've, they've, ta- they've convinced themselves that they're not poor and that they're rich and they've got all this stuff. But in reality, the whole thing is a masquerade. They are, they, the reality of the situation is that they are absolutely broke. They are flat broke, but... The, the, the outward, everyone else would think, oh, well, they've got this and this and this. They, they don't own any of it. They're broke. And so Dave says, you know what you got to do if you're going to get your financial situation straightened out? The first thing you got to do is you got to come to grips with the reality of your situation. And the same is true spiritually. You've got to come to grips with the reality of your situation that without God, you're spiritually destitute. And you've got to just say, you know what? There's nothing that I can even do about this. I can't get on some type of snowball program or anything. I can't do it. The, the, uh, the, and if you've read Dave Ramsey, you know what I'm talking about. Amen. But I can't even do a snowball or anything like that. The I cannot do anything about my spiritual bankruptcy. And you've got to come to God and believe in him and believe that he is the one that can fill you up and give you the riches of his glorious grace and his mercy and just fill you up because he's got treasure troves of mercy and riches that he wants to bestow upon that person that comes to the realization by the power of the Holy Spirit that is activating in your life and convincing you and convicting you that you need a savior and without Jesus, you're totally lost and destitute in this world. Amen? And so... He opened up his mouth and he taught them. Amen. Amen. So don't do spiritually what so many people do financially. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. I remember years ago I was watching one of like, I think it was Oprah, back when you could kind of watch Oprah. I don't know how far back that was. It was a long time ago. Trust me. And, they, and they, she did this thing on people who like are hoarders and they buy all these clothes. And she went into this one woman's closet and it, she, it was like just a whole room full of clothes with all the tags on them. She never even wore them. And she was just broke, headed into bankruptcy. And here Oprah was here to say, you know, let's get a grip on this situation. Let's just get Let's get into reality here. And the Holy Spirit is here to get us all into reality. Amen? Truth. The truth of Jesus Christ. The truth that without him, we're spiritually nothing and we're headed for destitution and we're in the kingdom of darkness. Citizens of heaven are aware of the reality of their spiritual poverty. 
Now, what is the end of these people who realize and understand the reality of their spiritual poverty? God, Jesus says this, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who are poor in spirit, so poor they must beg, are rewarded. They receive the kingdom of heaven because poverty of spirit is an absolute prerequisite for receiving the kingdom of heaven. And as long as we harbor illusions about our own spiritual resources, we will never receive from God what we absolutely need to be saved. We've got to come to grips with the truth. Now I bring it to a close. I do. Maybe you're not following Jesus here tonight. You aren't a citizen of heaven currently. Here's the message for you. Don't continue to fool yourself about your spiritual bankruptcy. Do not do it. If Dave Ramsey were here, he would beg you to come into the reality of your financial situation. I am not Dave Ramsey. I am Charles Nestor II, and I am here as a messenger from God to tell you do not stay in your situation without God. Realize your spiritual bankruptcy and come to God because he is one that wants to bless you and pour into your life the riches of his grace, of his mercy, and of his love so that you can be saved. Realize it, repent of your sins, and inherit the kingdom. Now, maybe you're here tonight and you are a citizen of heaven. The danger for the citizen of heaven is to begin to become self-righteous. Because God has given you tremendous riches as a citizen and an heir of the kingdom of heaven, you begin to feel that you had something to do with it. No. You didn't have anything to do with it. The only thing that you did was reached out and responded to God and said, God, I'm lost without you. I need you. And so whether you've been walking with Jesus for one day or 95 years, it makes no difference. Everyone in the kingdom comes in the same exact way, and that's through poverty of spirit and declaring their own spiritual bankruptcy. Amen? I got to finish. I got to read this. I got to read this. This is what Spurgeon said. This is what Charles Spurgeon said about this text. And I quote, The poor in spirit are lifted from the dunghill and set not among hired servants in the field, but among princes in the kingdom. Poor in spirit, the word sounds as if they describe the owners of nothing, and yet they describe the inheritors of all things. Happy poverty. Millionaires sink into insignificance. The treasures of the Indies evaporate in smoke, while to the poor in spirit remains a boundless, endless, faultless kingdom, which renders them blessed in the esteem of him who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen? So here's the $64 million question. Are you poor in spirit? Are you poor in spirit? Are you spiritually bankrupt in your own resources? If you are in that place and come to God, repent of your sins. You will receive the kingdom. Jesus will grant you full naturalization in the kingdom of heaven, full citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. And you have to come in 
just like everybody else comes in. Just like Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and everyone else. Putting your faith and trust in the Lord God of heaven.